Welcome to the Wealth Trifecta, where we explore all things health, wealth, and happiness. This podcast is designed to uplift and ignite your journey to financial independence and lifestyle design. I'm your host, Holly Morphew, personal finance expert, accredited financial counselor, and life enthusiast. True wealth is the convergence of health, happiness, and good fortune. And what I love most about wealth building is that it doesn't matter where you start. What matters is that you start. Wealth is for everyone, and that includes you. Hello, wealth builders. I am so excited to bring you today's episode. Our guest is Ravi Rothenberg, author of the book, Ready to Rise. Ravi is a transformational coach, embodiment facilitator, yoga teacher, and recently a father. He has an adventurous, compassionate spirit driven by a purpose deeply rooted to inspire and empower others to take their journey inward. Ravi is a cycle breaker and a transitional character who infuses his experiences and healing modalities through his offerings at Rise with Ravi. We had a magical and deep conversation on today's podcast. Ravi and I talked about how expectations and conditions can be put on us by others and how disempowering it is to accept what others tell us we should be doing instead of tapping into our core and asking, what is right for me right now? We talk about the shoulds that we put on ourselves and how to disengage from negative self-talk that says that we should have should be, or should be doing something. You'll even hear me question, who says we shouldn't have any debt? And while debt elimination is one of the pillars of wealth, it's also not black and white. Debt is not bad, it's just expensive. It is a tool that can be used to bridge a gap between where you are now and where you want to go. So be careful of shitting on yourself, even when it comes to money. Ravi and I also talk about practical ways that we can let go and trust that everything is working out for the best of us. Specifically, I talk about my recent ayahuasca experience and the wisdom I learned from a shaman about how to actually let go and actually trust that things are working out. So without further ado, let's go to the show. Ravi, welcome to the show. Wonderful to be here, (laughs) truly. I'm so excited to chat and connect with you. We met at Evoso Live, Aaron Weed's Evoso Live in Boulder. Was that in 2018 or 2019? That was the last day of March, 2019. Okay. Today is the first day of March, 2023, (laughs) four years later. We are coming full circle, aren't we? Always. Always. (laughs) And when we first met, you had a different name. This is true. I, I still carried my birth name at the time. I was Jordan and Jordan's still here. He's still down in there, but on the surface, I'm Ravi these days. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I want to hear more about your journey to the name change and how you got your new name. Cause I know that it's very special and it's a beautiful story. It's interesting that the two of us met when we did, you know, of course I was speaking about money. My talk was called light about money. And I know now because I've read your beautiful book that that talk made an impact in your life. And so just talk to me about your journey, Ravi, from sort of where you were when we met that last day of March in 2019 to today. Yeah. Wow. Beautiful question. In many ways, I am an extension of that day still 
like on the surface internally and externally everything has changed everything has shifted but a seed was planted that day in a major way and just zooming out where i was in my life in that moment um, i had been fired from my job about a month before a job that was like really aligned and this kind of dream job and this really the work i was doing in the world was this perfect intersection of where i was personally and professionally didn't feel like work and i was so ingrained and enmeshed in that service that i was in and i think i took that for granted too like i didn't realize that oh this is i'm working for an organization and things can shift and that can be taken from me in an instant and that's what it felt like it felt like it really got the rug pulled out from underneath me and so that evoso live event um, i had just had a birthday that I was also a bit like ashamed of. I like didn't want to be in the spotlight because I'd just been fired from my job. And I was really in this place of redefining myself. And my, my core intention after losing that job was to embrace transition. I did not want to just jump back into the next thing immediately. I knew that was an option. I, that's what everyone was telling me and insisting that I do but I really wanted to commit to embracing transition. And then this amazing event showed up and a, a dear friend who I really respect had posted about it. And she even said, if you're having any hardship, send me a note and I will sponsor your ticket. I think it was a hundred dollars for the day. And, uh, and I was, I felt I, I could have afforded the hundred dollars, but I was also just, you know, she offered that. So I said, Hey, I'm in this transition. I lost my job. I'm really just open to what's next. And she was like, great, your ticket is sponsored. All you have to do is show up. And that's what I did. I, I really showed up. I was 100% present. I had no calendar to manage. I had no inbox to check. Like no one was pinging me because I was really just this untethered spirit at the time. And so I remember too, so vividly, just the energy that was in myself as I was sitting in that room full of people that were also hungry for what was being presented. But like my phone was either on silent or off. I just had this little notebook that they gave us that day. And I was just a sponge. I was so present, so there, interacting with the people sitting around me, so engaged with the speakers, you being one of them. And I'll say fast forward four years, there's still that enthusiasm and engagement with life and with learning and connecting with the environment and world around me that has been an extension of what I felt and embodied that day. Wow. So let's talk about the name change, because I know that that, that was part of the journey to now. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's all connected, like undeniably for me connected. So that day at Evoso Live, one of the main exercises that we went through was called the head, the heart, and the core. And briefly summarizing, we can simplify that we all have these three parts, our head, our heart, and our core. Usually we go through life, especially in a work setting, we're really living from our head. We're speaking from factual information. Where are you from? Where did you go to school? What do you do? Very much in our head. Sometimes we can drop into our heart, speak from our feeling place. Ah, I feel really excited to talk to Holly today, or I feel really bummed about the state of the world, or feel scared for being a father. Like we can tap into our feeling state when we speak from the heart. And then rarely, and this was where this day was a complete 
just opening for me is that rarely we get access to our core. But when we place our hand on our belly and we give ourselves permission to speak from the core of our being, what do I want? What do I want out of my life? What do I want for the world? What do I want for my new daughter? And it was at two in the morning after that Evoso live day where at the core of my being, I wanted to go abroad and do a yoga teacher training, something I'd been considering but resisting for years. And now that I had no job, I also chose to leave the relationship I was in within 24 hours of that event. At the core of my being, I wanted to go to ultimately to India and do a yoga teacher immersion. And I followed that. I allowed myself to say yes to what my core wanted. And so, yeah, within about a month of that day where we met, I was on a plane to India, did a one month long yoga teacher training. And then from there, I had another like eight weeks in India by myself, just totally with no plans, just open to whatever was going to show up. And again, long story medium. One of the things I did was I, I did this 10 day silent meditation retreat. For those of you familiar with meditation retreats, this was not a Vipassana. It was similar in the sense that it was 10 days long. We were in silence. Um, but instead of Vipassana and this kind of strict style of meditation, I was in a group of 110 people in northern India in this beautiful retreat center learning about the uh, fundamentals of Buddhism from a Buddhist monk. And it was, again, incredible. And just like that day at Avoso, I was sitting in the front row, dead center, directly in front of the monk with my journal, taking it all in, fully engaged. And even on day, um, on day two, actually, I sat in the same spot. And in the morning, he said, all right, whatever spot that you're in right now will be your spot for the next nine days. Do not move. When you come in every time between meals and all the things in morning and night, same spot. And that was amazing for me. I was such a relief, actually. I was like, oh, I love, and I was attached. I was attached to this spot that I had chosen. And then I was given the opportunity just to really relish and marinate in that attachment. And because I had just done a full month of yoga, my body was so prepared for sitting for hours a day in meditation. And it was a yeah, really beautiful arc of yoga for a month, these 10 days of meditation. And then after that, I learned about this, uh, another retreat center that was an Osho center. This Osho center had these, all these incredible programs, but many of them were in Hindi and others were totally full. They were sold out. But there was one program that was offered in English and it had space. And it was the last five days of my time in India. It was a tight window, but I was willing to try. So I did this five-day program through an Osho center called Reclaiming Inner Child. And it was just that. It was five days of full-on Osho meditations and playing and acting like children, and listening to these beautiful Osho discourses. Um, I was the only Westerner in the whole program. So it was me and like 30, there were 40 of us total, uh, 35 uh, Indians. There were two women from Asia. There was an Israeli person uh, and then me. And it was incredible. And at the end of that program, they asked if anybody wants to take sannyas. I had never heard of this word. Osho talks a lot about sannyasins. And what I would learn is that a sannyasin is someone who has taken sannyas. 
and sannyas is a commitment. Actually, in the Hindu religion, sannyas is the last stage of life. There's like these four distinct stages in, in Hinduism of life. And in sannyas, at the end of life, towards the end of life, you give up everything. You give up identity, you give up this need to be worldly and have possessions. But in Hinduism, it's because you have raised a family, you have earned a living, you have uh, provided for everything. And then now you kind of retreat inward in this final stage of life. And Osho talks about why wait until the end of life to turn inward and to give up everything on the outside to have everything that's available on the inside. And so his whole thing is that my sannyasins, my, my people, they make this commitment to living fully and turning inward fully, totally uh, early in life or potentially earlier. And this was all new to me. And so when they asked if anybody wants to take sannyas, I was like, excuse me, what, what is this? Uh, and then, you know, people, when they hear the word Osho or some of these lineages at all, they think cult or some strict dogmatic organization, whatever. And so that's where my head went first. It was kind of the skeptic in me. It was like, okay, what does that mean? How much is it going to cost? What do I have to give up? Right? That, that's, the, that's the dialogue that showed up. And the, the facilitator of the event, he laughed at me. Um, ah, you, you stubborn Westerner. Uh, you don't have to pay anything. You don't have to give up everything. But it is a personal choice. It is something that you get to make. Um, we give you this you know, beautiful necklace with a little Osho picture on it. And ultimately, it's your journey. And I was like, oh, okay, that feels lighter. And I was like, you know, this has been amazing. But this is also my first real interaction with this Osho stuff. Um, even though my yoga teacher is an Osho sannyasin, but I didn't know that. And there was this huge poster of Osho in this marble dome where I've been practicing yoga for 30 days. And I have even selfies of me with this poster of Osho, but I never knew who he was. I just assumed that he was some yogi, some bearded, piercing-eyed Indian man. But I would later learn that a lot of these non-traditional meditations that I did in my yoga training were Osho meditations, that my yoga teacher, the main one, is an Osho sannyasin. And so the fact that I ended up at this Osho center kind of made sense. And then um, this is where it gets interesting. So I declined this opportunity to become a sannyasin. And I'm checking out on the last day. I'm in the back office, like paying my final deposit and returning my keys. And this beautiful Indian woman is like, she looks at me and she's like, you're not from around here, are you? It's like, no, I'm uh, from the United States. <laughs> I'm saying it very like clearly. And she's like, oh, United States. Yes, where in the United States? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm from a state called Colorado. She's like, okay, yes, I know Colorado. Uh, where in Colorado are you from? I was like, well, I'm, I've been living in Boulder for the last few years. She's like, oh, we have dear friends in Boulder. There's actually an Osho Center in North Boulder. And I'm like, what, really? And she's like, yeah, um, would you like me to introduce you? And I said, sure, please. So she introduces me to this Osho Center in North Boulder. It's five minutes away from where I've been living for the last five years. And of course, I've never heard of it, never been. And the same weekend that I'm returning from India, 
this Osho Center is celebrating their 25 year anniversary. And so she connects me to them. They share this information with me. I'm like, oh my God, this is perfect. I'd love to volunteer or help or do anything. And so actually my first ever yoga class that I taught was the first thing to kick off this weekend long 25 year anniversary celebration. And then they had all these meditations and things that I've been doing for the last few months. And yeah, I fully immersed myself in this Osho celebration. And again, towards the middle of it, they said, hey, if anybody wants to take sannyas, let us know so that we can prepare and we're having a ceremony on Sunday. And I, now I knew what that word meant. I knew what it involved. And actually the woman who I'd been also really hanging with that whole weekend, she looks over me and she's like, I'm taking sannyas. I've been doing this work for years and I'm taking sannyas this weekend. And I looked at her and I was like, really? I'm going to join you. And it was just a full body yes. Um, and so me and her were the only ones out of this group of maybe 50 people that were really engaged all weekend who were taking sannyas. And on, on that Sunday, they prepared this beautiful ceremony. They told us to wear white. And the day before, we had spent time with some of like, I'll call them the elders in this community. And other people that are really the organizers and the main heart and soul of mm. this Osho community. Um, so I spent time with them, just learning about my journey, getting a sense of my essence, because ultimately they were going to, to meditate and to do their own process for, for coming up with a name for me. And they asked me if I, I had any preferences or desires for specific names. And I didn't really, I was pretty open. And then on that Sunday, I was wearing white, beautiful, sunny Colorado day. They had a live musician. This is older gentleman who used to play music for Osho uh, in the 70s and 80s in India. Um, it was all so, so just pure. And uh, yeah, I was given, given a name. And the, the full name is Swami Ananda Ravi. Um, Swami being a prefix for a male teacher, um, Ananda translating Sanskrit to bliss or blissful. Uh, and then Ravi is uh, sun god. So blissful sun god is my the translation of the name and Ravi for short. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And since you, it sounds like let go and sort of shed that identity through that process, do you feel like things have shifted in your life? Do you feel like you've let go of that identity? Mm, great question. So for a few months, I was only Ravi within that Osho community, the small community in North Boulder. I was Jordan everywhere else. Uh, but then I'd, I'd run into people around town and they'd be calling my name, Ravi, Ravi, hey, Ravi. And be like, oh, mm -hmm. that's me. Wow. And I was meeting all these people that had been sannyasins for decades. Many of them are in their 60s and 70s, and they've had these funny Sanskrit names for a long time. But the way the glimmer in their eyes, the way they show up for life and the present moment and for meditation is like nothing I've ever seen in really anywhere. And so I got to a point where I wanted to be integrated. I wanted to feel like Ravi when I was meditating in the Osha community and when I was walking down the street on Pearl Street. And so I went to Hawaii a few months later to visit a friend and I asked him, I said, hey, um, right away when I arrived, I said, hey. And I shared a bit about my journey. And I said, hey, will you call me Ravi for the next two weeks? 
we're going to be meeting all sorts of people and going to events and workshops. And um, I'd like to try Ravi on fully. Mm. And he was so supportive. He was like, yeah, I'll call you Susie, whatever you want me to call you. <laughs> um, and uh, so I was fully Ravi for those few weeks. I felt so integrated, so whole. And then it was at that moment that I decided to change my name on Facebook, change my email address, uh, and ultimately share with my family that I was going to be going public, coming out of my own closet of really exposing myself as Ravi because it felt so good to be fully, I, it felt like I was aligned and in my essence and able to be fully expressed. And even as I was meeting people, they're like, oh, Ravi, I love that name. Like, you seem like a Ravi. People that have just met me, I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm embodying this. I feel, I, again, this integrity piece of like expressing myself on the outside, how I was feeling on the inside mm -hmm. and changing my name really gave me permission to do that. Mm. And how did your family react to the name change? Not good. Yeah. My, uh, my dad laughed at me. Uh, my mom was in tears. Uh, my sister, I have two younger sisters who were also really upset. Um, you know, for me, I had had this really, again, aligned, expansive journey that made total sense every step of the way. But for them, it was there was this huge gap. They're like, wait, wait, Jordan, you're Jordan. You know, where my, my sister has a, a Hebrew name. Her name is Shifra. And she was like, no, 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 we're Shifra and Jordan. I'm not Shifra and Ravi. Who the fuck is Ravi? Yeah, my whole journey of detaching and and really growing from Jordan to Ravi didn't make so much sense. And so for them, there was a lot of attachment to my identity as Jordan. Mm. Uh, and it was really confronting for them too, to like feel like the sense of loss. Mm. And, and that was totally okay. I wasn't um, rigid about them saying, well, you have to call me Ravi or I'll never speak to you again, right? I was also detached and let them have their own process. Uh, and grief around losing the the identity of Jordan. But it was also a little, in hindsight, it's like, yeah, of course it was hard to receive that that update. Um, but in the moment, I was also like, oh, why are they taking this so hard? Because uh, it made perfect sense to me. Mm -hmm. But that was their process. And even a few years later, they mostly call me Ravi. Sometimes they call me like Ravi Jordan. <laughs> uh, and it's fine. I, I don't care. It's It's not about... Uh, what the outside world, how they perceive me. Yes. It's the inner journey that really is important. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You talk about how we should stop shooting on ourselves Yeah. and find acceptance and peace with where we are now. So I'm wondering if you can speak to that because I know there are those who are listening right now who are wanting something more from life or maybe some peace and acceptance from where they are now, whether that's with their health or it's with their happiness. Maybe they're struggling with anxiety because they feel like they should be doing something or they should be doing more. I know that I struggle with that a lot myself that I should be doing more. Can you talk about that? How you found acceptance with where you were in your journey? And maybe mm. some some words of wisdom. Mm. Yes, yes, I love that question. Should, should is an energetically dense dense word, right? It's like this command that we project out onto ourselves and onto others. Usually, it is actually external. 
right? It comes from our, our parents, our society, our grandparents. Oh, you should marry a nice Jewish girl. You should go to law school. You should become a doctor. You should save all this money. So lots of people are already shooting on us. And so I think one of the greatest gifts that we can give ourselves is to remove should from our own language, right? And first, again, just checking ourselves when we're shooting on others, we're shooting on our partner, our spouse, our kids, and then also remove shooting on ourselves. For me, it comes down to trusting and accepting exactly where we're at, right? I'm, I just turned 35. I have a child. And so if I were to should on myself, I would say something like, I should own my own business by now. I should have $100,000 saved minimum in my bank account. I should own a home. I should be legally married. Um, so I could should on myself all day long. But all that does is add pressure to an already pressurized existence. There's already so many forces pushing and pulling on us. So why add another layer, right? So my whole business in life, the way I navigate the world is really one of enlightenment, of lightening the load that is already put on myself by external forces, by myself. And so again, I just check myself when I'm adding weight or burden to um, an already burdened existence. And so removing and releasing should is a great practice. And it's all, oftentimes when it shows up, for me, that's a good invitation to, again, turn inward, to accept where I am and to, to be at peace with that and to trust mm -hmm. that maybe there's something I'm growing through right now um, that's bringing me towards this thing that I should have. But in this moment, I don't have it. Mm -hmm. I should be debt free when I had a child, but I'm not. Mm -hmm. I should own a home, but I don't, right? And so it doesn't add any value to my day-to-day, -day, my moment-to-moment -moment, um, by, by adding this pressure. And I would even ask, is it true? Is it true that you should own a home? Says who? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and know? that's, and that's. Who the... says we should have no debt? Says yeah. who? Yeah. And so the shoulds connect also to the conditions that we put on ourselves. Okay. There are two part system that ultimately prevents us from being happy. It prevents us from living the life that we truly want to live at the core of our being. And it prevents us from being fully present. Okay. And so I want to make a clear distinction about how should and conditions connect to each other. Mm. Okay. So if I should, and we'll, we'll, we'll go in the topic of wealth and money. Let's say I should be making $100,000 a year. Okay. I should be a six figure earner. I'm 35. I'm well-educated trying to build a family. So I should have that. Okay. So I should on myself there. And then I add a second layer of pain and pressure with conditions. So maybe one of my conditions for getting married is that I won't get married until I'm earning six figures. I won't have a child until I'm earning six figures. I'll, I'll just stick with that example. Sure. Right. So I should on myself once where I say I should be making this money. Mm -hmm. And then there's a condition that I can't be happy. I mm -hmm. can't build a family until I hit that milestone. Okay. So now I'm postponing 
And, and if at the core of my being, if I am honest with myself and I say that I want to have a family, I want to have a dog and a yard. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that I want, but from my, mostly my mind and my head is saying that I should be making this money and I can't have those things until I'm making this, this amount of uh, income. So then I'm, I'm walking around preventing myself by my own accord from having the thing that I really truly want. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing about my experience and the universe responds when we're really living and breathing and speaking from our core and our heart. The mind gets in the way. And I think that's where anxiety and stress show up. You know, I have a lot of friends who are in their mid thirties, approaching 40, who are, are single or in a relationship that they don't see going towards family and kids. But when they get clear of like at the core of my being, they're like, yeah, I want to be a dad. I want to raise a child and have a family. But there's all these shoulds and conditions that are really preventing them from giving themselves ultimately permission to live and speak from, from their core. Yes. You've mentioned a couple of times trust. And I would love to, if it's okay with you, go a little deeper into this because as you know, I'm recently back from Costa Rica where I was at Rhythmia and had four ayahuasca ceremonies in one week. Wow. wow. <laughs> and you're alive. Look. I'm here. I made it. it. <laughs> but I will, I will share. I had a moment there where I had been on my mat the entire night and just in the medicine. And I got up and went to the bathroom. And when I came out, there was a shaman waiting for me. And he asked, will you come with me? And I thought, uh, wh what? But I trusted, you know, I was there in full trust and surrender and very beautiful, safe um, environment. And he took me to the head shaman for the evening who was leading the ceremony and administering the medicine. And, um, you know, of course there were between 80 and 90 of us in the Maloka doing the medicine together with the music. And it was just beautiful. And she sat me down in front of her. Of course she had her, you know, her feathers and all, all the things. I mean, it just felt so big and grand. And, mm. and she said, I'm going to do a healing for you. And your only job is to trust that this is going to work. And I mean, I mean, I'm getting like teary just thinking about this because I had gone into that ceremony with trust on my heart. How do I trust? But how do I actually trust? It's one thing to say, I trust that the universe has my back or that the universe is working on my behalf. But like, how do I actually do that? And mm -hmm. so I just had this, my heart just said, ask, Holly, you're here, ask ask the shaman. This is her work, her life's work. And so I did, I said, I want to, but how do I trust? And she said, the way you trust is you nurture your inner child. And when you talked earlier, Ravi, about the inner child work that you did, I thought, here we go. We're coming full circle again. And, you know, and she had said that, when we are usually between, you know, zero and five, six, seven years old, very young childhood, that's when we experience the break. And, you know, maybe our, our soul, um, disconnects in some way it's called a split, right? Yeah. 
And she, she said, you know, Holly, imagine yourself as a baby, 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 infant baby, and you're crying. And do you need to cry? Just cry. Do you need attention? Give her attention. Does she need snuggles? Give her snuggles. And I will say that that has been really powerful for me. And when I get into a place where, you know, wherever we are on the wealth journey, you know, having, you know, a published best-selling book like you, Ravi, or, you know, maybe someone listening is a six-figure earner and still unhappy or whatever it is, mm-hmm. the way that I learned to come home and to trust and to practice trusting, because it is a practice after all, was to just go back to my inner child and really give her whatever it is that she needs. And so Mm. I just share that with you because I'm wondering if on your own journey to trusting, if you've had any experiences with something practical that's helped you. Mm. Love that. And I just want to honor what you just shared and taking us into the Maloka being seated right there with the shaman for a, a VIP healing. <laughs> uh, yeah, really beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. And I, I also want to reflect too, that I've, I've also had, you know, moments with, with the medicine where the trust, it is, it's a softening, right? There's a, there's a rigidity and a mistrust that we walk around with, uh, that I walked around with for a long time. Um, and I, I couldn't trust, like, even I had just been fired from my employer that I had so much trust in. I was like, oh, this is my dream job. I'm literally living and breathing it. And then that was taken from me. And so then there's like this mistrust of like, ah, ultimately I can't trust really anything outside of myself. And so I have to source trust from the inside. And then I can start to rebuild my trust with, with external factors and forces and but ultimately, I think that the, the energetics of the universe are asking us to trust, to soften. And I think something practical is, honestly, it's a day-to-day, moment-to-moment experience and experiment of any place that there is resistance showing up in your life or rigidity, something that you're so fixed on and so rigid about for me, every one of those are an opportunity to soften, to lower down your shield or your wall and trust and breathe. Honestly, the mm-hmm. breath for me is so crucial for being able to trust, you know, even walking out of the house, you know, again, if we're tense, if we're in our heads, if we're stressed about something, that's the energy we're bringing to the outside. And so of course, it's hard to trust others or to trust traffic or to trust the, the, again, the things out of our control. And so for me, it is meditation, it's mindfulness, it's conscious breathing, it's yoga, things that bring me into my body, into a place where I can trust myself. And then from there, start to really illuminate and emanate trust onto others. And, you know, even there was one instance in my yoga teacher training, I'm in India, totally out of my environment, doing things that I never even could have dreamed of. I didn't even know these things, these practices existed. I really had to trust myself, trust the instructors. And then there was a moment, and this was such a big moment in my whole journey, um, where for whatever reasons, one morning I checked my email. Again, I was not checking my email regularly. It was barely on my phone. For whatever reason, I checked my email and I have this... uh, 
I have a fresh email from this woman in Boulder. And long story short, she is sharing with me that um, her son uh, took his life. And I, I get a, yeah, a little emotional when I talk about this uh, because it was very emotional. Her son was, um, he was an only child and he was in a Waldorf high school. And his senior project was to work with me in my previous job. And he was one of the organizers of a startup weekend as a high schooler. And he was an exceptional human, so bright and brilliant beyond many of the adults that I worked with. And he, his whole capstone senior project was about the work we had done together. And so she shared with me that he had taken his life and that, um, anyways, I'm, it's this long email. I read the subject line in the first two sentences and I know what I'm reading. And I run outside to my, my Indian teacher who's just sitting on a chair or under a tree. And I'm like babbling like a fool, trying to tell him a version of what's happening. But ultimately there's an emotion that is showing up for me. It's sadness and anger. And both of them are showing up for me in real time. And I'm trying to ask him, what do, what do I do? How do I, how do I navigate this? Um, because old me would have like, yeah, rigid, resisted, like I'm tough. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to let this phase me. And he just pointed to the ground and he said, lie down. And I, I did. I, I trusted that wisdom. I lied down on the grass. The sun is down on my face. And I bawled for about 45 minutes, just fully released, crying hysterically. I would also then be laughing hysterically, uh, but really went through this deep, deep emotional release for probably the first time in my life that a true emotion showed up. And I knew how to let that energy in motion mm. that I believe emotions are energy in motion. I was able to let that energy move through me because I trusted that process that needed to happen. And I softened enough to allow it. And on the other side of that, I was so light, so free, so ecstatic, actually. It really was a very blissful experience. And yeah, I, I had to trust. I had to trust that that's what needed to happen for my journey. Um, and then, and I really, am, I, I was able, it was a full body release mm -hmm. um, because I trusted my body and I trusted what I needed to do. And then a few years later, Actually, I received this similar, I was in India again during the pandemic. And this time I got a phone call that my best friend, who my book is dedicated to, my best friend died. And it was, again, the, the worst information I could have received over a phone call uh, first thing in the morning while I'm half a world away. And I trusted also that I knew what to do. And I, again, I looked over my partner who I was with. It was the first thing in the morning. And I'm babbling, like trying to explain what I just received, but trusting what, that I knew what I had to do. And similarly, I went outside. I found a patch of, of ground and soil and I lied down on my back while the sun was coming through and I just bawled and I let it all move through me. And and then it was kind of funny. I was lying in this garden that had a timed sprinkler system. <laughs> and then um, 
the, the water came on and just soaked me and I just didn't care. I'm lying there just taking it all in. And um, again, trusting that I needed to grieve. I needed to soften. I needed to breathe and grieve fully. And I did. And then I had to show up for a lot of people that I was going to be contacting to, to be there. Um, but because I let myself trust the process, trust the grief process, really, I was a lot lighter and I could show up in a really intentional, conscious way for others to go through their own grieving process. And I think to this day, it's such a gift to, to have that. Wow. Is my reaction to those, um, those memories and those stories. And, um, thank you for your authenticity, Robbie, and, and sharing mm. that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you talk about the water and the sprinklers coming on while you're laying there in grief and feeling your emotions and allowing yourself to express those emotions, you know, water is symbolic of washing things away and cleaning ourselves and preparing ourselves. And you mentioned that you had a lot of phone calls to make as a result of this. And maybe the universe was giving you exactly what you needed in that moment to refresh you and strengthen you because then you had work to do. Yes. 1000%. And I'm I'm a water sign. I have a deep connection to the ocean, to great bodies of water. Um, They're absolutely to your point of like that healing and just washing and cleansing. It's uh definitely a significant element for me. And I think about going back to, you had mentioned how breath is powerful for you to come home to trust. That is a practical technique that you use for trusting. And what's interesting about the breath is it is a way for us to connect with our body, to get out of our head into our heart and our core, connect with what is true. And what is true is our physical form. And it's like the consciousness creates the physical form and what a, a powerful thing that we have at every single moment to just take a breath and connect back into ourselves. And that for me, you know, that's where I'm safe. I'm safe in my body and I can connect with my body through my breath. And it makes me think, you know, just talking about safety and we we're talking about trust a lot. I think this is important. This is an important conversation because we all know the many things that are happening in the world. And, um, I think we're all seeking safety and trust and strength mm-hmm. to move forward. Mm-hmm. You know, I had an experience a few years ago where I was at Folsom field, the dead and company, I think it's called with John Mayer. Mm-hmm. He's not with them mm-hmm. anymore, but it was, you know, his second to last summer on tour with them. And we had this massive hailstorm with oh. like light crashing lightning. And just all of a sudden it was just like hail and rain and thunder and lightning. And of course at Folsom field on the CU Boulder campus, in order to exit the field, you have to go through these, like, they're like little tunnels. Yeah. And, um, and of course I'm rivers of hail, hail and water. And, and there were so many people, it was like a stampede of people trying to get through these tunnels. And so I happened to be with a good friend of mine, who's the reverend at unity of Boulder, um, which is a spiritual movement, but they have services on Sundays. And so, you know, this is someone who I've been watching speak for many years and I really trust her and she's a very wise woman. And she said to me, as we're going through Holly, I can see that you are basically freaking out. And she's like, you are, you are safe. You're, she grabbed my arm and I was having like a full on panic attack. Sure. 
And ultimately we got out, there was no stampede, but you know, there was at a football game, you know, overseas sure. just not too many months ago. And, and these things do happen. And so when we got out, um, of course I'm panting and I'm crying and I'm still in that fear mode. And, and she said, Holly, you're safe. You're safe right now. And I said, but what if, you know, what if I'm not in the future and I don't feel safe? And, and she said, well, that's because of, you know, what has happened to you in your life. But in this moment, you are safe and mm. just breathe. And I have just carried that with me. It was like that experience happened for a reason for me, for my own growth process. And so just hearing you also reiterate and validate once again, how powerful our breath is and how we can always come home to our breath. Just that, that makes me feel so good. And I hope for those who are listening that you now have another tool in your tool belt for when you need trust or safety or strength to move forward. Mm. Yes. Love that. And even to the listener, I would even let's take, take this opportunity to maybe place a hand on your low belly Mm. and, and breathe into that space. Yes. Even I have a baby now and I see babies breathe from their belly. And it's not until probably that split happens or somewhere later in life where we start to breathe short Mm. in our chest. And that's where feelings, you know, we're experiencing feelings of anxiety or stress or worry. That's when we're short and breathing up in the chest. So anytime that we can slow down, breathe from the belly, turn on that good parasympathetic nervous system and remind our whole, our whole system that we are in fact safe. Mm. Yes. Ravi, your book is called ready to rise. Tell me about writing the book, what that process was like for you, because it is of course Mm. a journey writing the book. And also why did you write the book? Mm. I'll start with the second part, why I wrote the book. I had been a few years into this kind of meandering healing journey that I was on. And along the way, I was amassing so many tools, attending workshops, retreats, immersions. Like I was so, again, just back to that day at Evoso, like I was so engaged in my own journey and own process. And at the same time, seeing so many people around me that I really care about and love struggling and unresourced. And so it felt, I, I got to this point where I was, and I've always been a writer. I've really always gravitated towards writing, studied journalism in college, um, been a journaler and just writing is how I make sense out of, out of the world and my own experience. So the writing piece didn't feel so daunting and I'm amassing all these tools, all this wisdom for myself. And I was trying to write. I was trying, 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 I was writing and it was Really, it had no backbone. It had no through line. uh, And I was struggling. So I went through this uh, writing your way home course with an author named Jeff Brown, who I really, really admire. And that was great. And I had this kind of core project through this course. I had some momentum for a few months and then kind of fell flat. And then someone who we both know, a woman named Catherine, showed up on my path. uh, And then we reconnected a few years after connecting in person, really serendipitously. Um, and actually what I was living in India, had all this time in space during the pandemic, living in this very kind of minimalist retreat center. And then my best friend died. And the night before he died, we had actually spoken on the phone because he was at my family's house 
having dinner, which he doesn't do like maybe once, probably never before has he had dinner with my family when I wasn't there. And my mom made him my favorite meal. Uh, and so again, it gives me chills. His last meal was with my, my family. And I'd been telling him because they called me while they were together and I was sharing this workshop that I had just gone through, which again, perfect circle. It was another Aaron Weed workshop where I did the dig um, and I had my word and I wanted to share about this process and I wanted to take him through it because he was going through a divorce and all these other things were happening with him. He was so enthusiastic about it. He was like, yeah, I'm down. Next time you're in town, let's do it. And then he died that night. Um, and again, I was just motivated to like, oh my God, this is life or death for, for many people. And again, I'm sitting on this mountain of wisdom. I want to find the through line. I want to let my experiences and my wisdom see the light of day so that others can uh, alleviate their own suffering. And so recommitted to the book that I've been struggling to, to make progress with. Um, I hired a coach. I went through a write your book program that was going to dramatically increase the chances of my book seeing the light of day. And it was not easy too. I was living abroad. I was not making much of a living. And so I'm making the biggest investment that I've made in myself uh, through hiring a coach and writing this book felt out of reach. Um, but also it felt like the most important thing that I needed to do. So I did what my financial advisor would not advise. Uh, and I liquidated a 401k and I cashed in savings and I put a little bit on my credit card so that I could commit to writing this book. And then fast forward a few months from India, I was now living in Thailand and a big part of my book writing journey was about being in the frequency day to day so that I could write from my heart and from my core and really transmit in an aligned, meaningful way. And so, yeah, that again, reconnecting to my inner child, nurturing myself, what are the self-care practices and ways of being and times of day that are going to put me into that state where I can write from, from the highest vibration uh, and, and actually certainly talking to you before I committed to that process and asking you about your journey were, were huge in giving me my, the, ultimately the permission that I needed. Um, to feel equipped and like I could do this um, and then like you know this it felt like an extension of another spiritual journey where every day I was either stepping into my higher self and writing and being from that place uh, or I was seeing the ways that I was either sabotaging myself or regressing and getting away from the, my true essence and even making it really practical, you know, I was living with my partner and my dog. And at the time we were living in this really cool spot, right? 50 yards from the beach in Thailand on this island full of workshops and activities and things to be distracted with. And so I really, again, if I was going to commit to this project and seeing the book all the way through, I had to have serious boundaries and I had to ask for space. And when I struggled with that, I... I took myself and I went and stayed somewhere else for a few days just so that I could write. Mm. Um, and I missed deadlines and I was behind on the progress I wanted to be making. Um, 
but ultimately I, I was able to see it all the way through. And so it's been actually about six months since the book has been out in the world. And I'm so grateful to, to be able to hold it and say that this, this is something that, that I created. Yes. And it is such a great book. I read it myself twice, actually, because I read it before it was published. I got one of the first copies. And um, and then, of course, I have the book now. Um, who is the book for, Robbie? Who did you write the book for? That's a good question. You know, the book at the onset was really for, and I was doing men's coaching and men's work and hosting men's embodiment workshops and doing a lot of things where I was interacting with with men in their late 20s and 30s who were shitting on themselves, who were feeling stress, who were not showing up for life or for their healing in a meaningful in a meaningful way. So it 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 is a guidebook for for that man who is um, who wants to really connect with their authentic self and start living from that place. And so there's lots of practical tools, journal prompts, exercises, um, even kind of subtle guided meditations uh, for connecting deeper to self and to honoring the path that, that we're walking as individuals. Ultimately, it was written for my best friend who never got a chance to read it and to other clients that I work with who are on their own path of struggling. Again, many of which are six-figure-plus earners, mm -hmm. um, but have never had the chance to really turn inward and make meaning out of their own life. So that's why it's called Ready to Rise, How to Find Your Path to Peace and Purpose. It is for that person who is yeah, ready to, to embrace their rising in whatever form that takes. Mm. Um, and so I talk about family dynamics and relationships and addictions and traumas and um, psychedelics. And really there's, there's very few places that I, that I didn't go because I really wanted to also liberate myself by, by sharing my journey and my story. Um, and there's also a number of women who have read the book. Um, my, my 94 year old grandpa has read the book. Um, so, so really it is for anybody who is ready to, to rise. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Ravi, what does wealth mean to you? So energetically, I feel like a billionaire with a B. Okay. Billionaire. So I feel like one of the wealthiest people on the planet in all of human history. And I don't say that lightly. I'm in a place where I want my bank account and the, the material world to be a reflection of how I feel on the inside and how I feel energetically, right? And that's definitely the journey that I'm on. But wealth to me is really, um, it is this combination of health and happiness and general well-being and peace and purpose and alignment in myself uh, that then radiates out how I interact with my family, my community, with the material world at large. Um, and so from an inner place, I feel, again, like so wealthy. Um, and also materially, I, I eat clean, beautiful food, mostly that I prepare. I have time and space in my schedule to take care of my body, um, to connect with nature and the environment, to contribute to my community, 
to uh, nurture my family. Like I, I truly, I feel like one of the wealthiest people in all of human history. Um, and I also feel a deep sense of safety in myself and in my, in the environment that I cultivate. And so the, you know, money and is, I believe, absolutely energy. And so uh, that is my journey now of turning all of this uh, non-material energetic abundance uh, into also being reflected in my bank account so that I can use money and energy as a tool to, to help others feel, feel this amount of tremendous wealth. Mm, that is so beautiful. And just like we talked about consciousness creating form, it's the same with money because money is energy. And it's the idea that we have to believe it to see it. And mm -hmm. this abundance that you're describing that you feel, and I've witnessed in my own experience with you is so beautiful. And there is no doubt that money is on its way to you, massive, abundant money. And it's funny because money is just one component, right? Of wealth. And I just love yeah. the way that you described what wealth means to you. So thank you. Thank you, Robbie. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for making a process for also simplifying the, the tangibility of, of bringing that money down from the field and into the way that we navigate the world. Yes. Yes. You're welcome. Ravi, where can people get your book and where can people find you? Amazing. So the book is on Amazon. Uh, it's also now on Audible, uh, again, inspired by you. Um, <laughs> but I went on my own journey to narrate uh, Ready to Rise. So it's on Audible if you like to listen. It's on Amazon if you want a hard copy or an ebook. Uh, and then the best place to connect with me is either on my uh, website, risewithravi.com, uh, or on Instagram, also at risewithravi. So this whole Rise business is... Uh, is consistent for me. And uh, I'd love, I'd love to connect. That's one of my favorite. If you're listening and you were inspired, I am so available for a connection call. I'd love to hear about your journey, your rising. Uh, and if there's a, a way to collaborate or work together, I'm always, always down to explore. Mm, wonderful. And are there any final words you would like to leave our listeners with? Yeah. So one of the, the other principles that I really live by is integration. So if you tuned into this hour plus long conversation and there was something that inspired you, um, take the time, sit down, journal about it, uh, marinate in it, let it be yours before going on to the next thing. Um, give yourself the gift of the time and space really to be with, uh, with whatever came up and, uh, and keep breathing. Yeah, because you're safe as long as you're breathing. Yeah, I'll leave, I'll leave it at that. Yes. Yes. Ravi, thank you so much for being on the show. It has really been a pleasure. Thank you, Holly. Thank you so much for listening to the Wealth Trifecta. If you loved this episode, please give it a five-star review and share it with your friends. Tune in again and find me on the socials at Holly Morph, where I share freebies, events, and inspiration. I always love to hear from my listeners. So please say hello. If you're looking for financial coaching, check out my website at financialimpact.com. Be sure to join my list and stay up to date with all my offerings, including private coaching, small group coaching, financial retreats, and more. Until we meet again, be healthy, be wealthy, and be happy.